As I mentioned earlier today, we're going to begin a series we're calling The Table. The Table is a place where bonds are formed, a place where memories are shared and passed on like Granny's gravy boat. We talk about stories. We share life together at the table. I don't know what your table looks like. Uh, This one was loaned to us by an antique dealer in Columbia, so this one's got some character to it. This one's had a lot of experiences. If this table could talk, how many of you know this table's got a lot of stories to tell? Probably some that family members wouldn't want told, but probably a lot that they would. Life is full of memories. Life is full of ups and downs, and a lot of them happen around the table. Holidays are celebrated. Business deals are negotiated. Extended family members are tolerated (laughs) at the table. Some of y'all are anticipating that with the upcoming holidays. You're going, yes, I know that experience well. Some of you are hoping to be demoted to the kids' table so you don't have to experience all the things that, that come with the table. But in reality, the table is a centerpiece of community. The table is a centerpiece of family life. And, and I would propose to you in this series that the table is the centerpiece of faith. The table is significant in Scripture. Just a, a cursory overview. I think about when God gave Moses instructions to build the tabernacle. And he said, this is the place where my presence is going to be, where you can meet with me. I want you to design this place there in Exodus 25. And one of the first things that he told him to design was a table. And on that table, I want you to put the bread of my presence. And he literally invited the priest to say, there's a place where you can come and you can pull up a seat and you can share a meal with me. And of course, we know that that table in the Old Testament pointed to the day that we're going to all celebrate at what the Bible calls the culmination of human history. It's the wedding feast, the marriage supper of the Lamb, where we will pull up a seat at a table. Think about that. And we'll share a feast with our Lord and our Savior. As I was praying earlier, the scripture came to mind in Psalm 23, verse 6, that says, you prepare a table for me in the presence of my enemies. He's a good shepherd. He's a good father. And he meets our needs. And not only does he just supply our our practical everyday needs, but the next part of that verse says, and you anoint my head with oil. So God wants to bless us and make provision for us and heal us. The Bible speaks over and over about the table. And this morning, I want to talk to you about this table in a unique way. There's a lot of ways that we could go at this thing. But this morning, I want you to know that the church is a table. And I want you to think with me this morning about this table that that we sit at today. The church that Jesus is building. The work that he's establishing in and through us. You know, a couple of years ago, I was excited to go to a new restaurant in Mesquite, Texas. Before we moved here, we lived there in the Dallas Metroplex. And, uh, and I love Tex-Mex. And so if there's a new uh, Mexican food restaurant opening up, I want to go there. And when I saw the name of this restaurant, I knew I wanted to eat there. Some of you know this about me because... Uh, you've experienced my wife's salsa at some of the uh, uh, food functions. I like heat. 
In fact, I got to be honest, I get a kick out of watching people unaware go over and dip chips into my wife's homemade salsa because most people up in the Northeast don't really like heat. And it's it's a little cynical, I know, but I get a kick out of watching people's first experience because it is a kick. But we heard about this restaurant called the Jalapeno Tree. I was like, that's got my name all over it. We're going to the Jalapeno Tree. And so eventually I had a chance to go out there with some, some folks from the church and, and we all got into the restaurant and, and I was taken back uh, as soon as I walked in by the decor because they didn't have booths uh, or tables like you would typically expect at a restaurant. They had patio furniture. And it wasn't like the good heavy duty patio furniture that you sit out by the pool all year long. It was the little flimsy plastic ones you know, the ones that like, if the wind blows a little bit, you got to go out, stack them and move them somewhere, or they're going to end up in the neighbor's yard. Those, those pre-molded plastic chairs, that's what they had. And so I, I sat down in one of those awkward little chairs, and to make matters worse, this little Tex-Mex restaurant had a, a really rough terracotta floor. And so there's no way you could slide that chair on that floor. I mean, they were sticking between the bricks and everything, and, and so... I'm sitting here at this table, and, and it's a little patio table. I'm in the restaurant, wanting some good Tex-Mex. And, and it doesn't have four legs, one on each corner. It's got one of those little pedestal things that shoot out with thin, you know, metal or aluminum, whatever. And they got those little adjustable tabs on them, and I can promise you they do no good. I mean, like, even on a poured concrete floor, these things are flimsy. But I'm on this terracotta floor sitting in a plastic chair that won't move. And every time somebody shifts their weight or adjusts, I'm grabbing stuff and I'm holding on to my drink. And it's just like that. I'm stressed. I'm not enjoying this meal at all. I'm wiping salsa off the table because people are leaning and shifting and and moving. And, And the whole experience, I can't tell you a thing about the food. I really can't. I left going, that was the worst table I've ever sat at. That was my experience. That table was terrible. I hated that chair. I will never go back and eat there until they get real restaurant furniture. And I want you to understand that the church is a table. And the table needs to be balanced. The table needs to be sturdy. And I would propose to you this morning in this message that the table has four legs that the church balances on. You might call them pillars or uh, beliefs or convictions or, or missional purposes even. But for today, I just want to call them table legs. And, and by the way, a healthy church is just a reflection of healthy church members in the church. So what I'm saying about the church being a table ought to be true of our lives. That these things that I'm going to, these four legs that I want to share with you today that, that are so important to the mission of the church ought to be equally important to the mission of each of our lives. Because let's be honest, we're not going to all come together on the weekend and magically become something that none of us are striving towards in our own hearts. The church is not a building. The church is people. We're the church. And the church stands as a table on four legs. And I want to tell you about those four legs. The first one is evangelism. If you're a note taker, write these down with me. Evangelism. 
is the priority of the church. We are called to rescue the perishing. That's what he's called us to do. Jesus walked this earth with one singular purpose. He communicated it in Luke chapter 19, verse 10. What did he say? He said, for the Son of Man came to seek and to save that which was lost. He came for one purpose, to seek and to save the lost. And then when he ascended back to the Father, all he had left was one organization to fulfill the task, to finish the work, to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. That organization was the church. And so we have to have this strong leg of evangelism if we're going to be a healthy table. Maybe you've heard this statement before. The church ought to be a hospital for sinners. I, I believe that's true. In fact, if you have your Bible, look with me in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 5. don't have a Bible with you, there's some in the pew backs, you can certainly borrow one, and we'll put this verse up on the screen, but in Luke chapter 5, verse 27, the word of the Lord says, after this, Jesus went out and he saw a tax collector by the name of Levi sitting at his tax booth. Follow me, Jesus said to him, and Levi got up and left everything and followed him. Then Levi held a great banquet for Jesus at his house, and a large crowd of tax collectors and others who were eating with them. Look at verse 30. It says, but the Pharisees and the teachers of the law who belonged to their sect complained to his disciples. They complained to Jesus' disciples, and here was their complaint. Look at it with me in verse 30. They said, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners. It didn't make sense to them. This is religion talking right here. Religion looking at the Son of God saying, it makes no sense to us why you would sit at a table with those people that we know are, are stealing our money, these people that are sinful, these people that are, are, are the, the bane of our Jewish culture. We, we do not like these people. Why would you intentionally go and associate with them if you want to make yourself out to be some kind of spiritual leader? Don't you know that that, that ruins your reputation? That stains your image? Why would you go there and spend time with these people? And Jesus' answer is so critically important to our understanding of this table. Jesus answered in verse 31. It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. I didn't come to call the righteous. I've come to call sinners to repentance. And that's why the statement is true that the church ought to be a hospital for the hurting. But here's the deal. When we cut off the leg of evangelism at the table of the church, we become less of an emergency room for sinners and instead we become a courtroom. We become a place where we look at what's wrong in people's lives and we make decisions about it. We make judgments about it. And we say, well, this person should do this or that person shouldn't be here because we are not walking. Here's the thing. Legalism says this. Legalism says if you'll behave like us, if you'll 
believe like us, then hey, we've got a seat right over here. You can belong with us. That's what legalism says. But evangelism says you belong. You belong. Evangelism says we have a seat for you at our table. It doesn't matter how you behave or even if you don't quite yet believe. You, you have a seat available at our table because Jesus didn't come to call the righteous. He came to call the sinners. He came to call us who still needed him. And here's the reality. I say you have a seat at our table, but it's not even our table. See, we're just poor beggars who got to the meal earlier. That, that's it. I might have been sitting here longer, but it's not my table. You might have been sitting there for 30 years. It's not your table. You just got here first. So scoot over. Amen? Scoot over and make room in your heart because evangelism is critical to the stability of this table called the church. It has to be a place where whosoever will may come and drink freely. Listen to this statistic. 86% of people who come to Christ are one through the witness of a friend, a relative, an associate, or a neighbor. 86% of people who come to Christ do so through those relationships. So that means we can never, as a church, or any church of any size for that matter, we can never make the excuse that we don't have the resources for evangelism. I'm looking at our evangelism program right now. The most successful, by and large, uh, effort of evangelism is through personal invitation. You are, I am, we are the evangelism program that Jesus established, that it was go and tell. And so he's called each and every one of us. I, just a quick poll of the audience here. Just raise your hand if you have members of your family that are not saved. Yeah, look, just look around the room. All, all of us, almost. All of us. There's a few exceptions, praise God, for, for that. But most of us all have family members that are not saved. And for a lot of you, your family lives close to you. Maybe you even sit down with them at a table. And just consider for a moment if, if God could just use us, not at the table of the church, but at the kitchen table, at the dining room table. If we could just see our own families come to know him, this church would be packed out this morning. We would be overflowing. We'd have extra seats out if we, just, if we just let God use us at our table. And maybe that's, maybe that's what God wants some of us to do. It's not, it's not always about a program. It's not always about an outreach event. It's about saying, God, you've given me influence. God, I recognize that 86% of the people that come to know you are not going to come because of an event that we do. They're not going to become come because of a compelling altar call from the pastor. They're going to come because they know me. And I compelled them to come. Evangelism is a critical leg. We've got to have evangelism. Let me give you the second leg on this table. It's worship. Worship is critical. Go with me to Psalm 150 in your Bible. Right there in the middle of the Word of God, this is the last chapter in the longest book of the Bible. Worship is important. It's the longest book. It's a song book in the Word of God. 
And I want to tell you, as, as a church, if the table's going to be balanced, we have to remember that one of our purposes is to worship God. That's what we come to do, to worship God. Look at it with me, Psalm 150. It says, praise the Lord. You know what that means? Hallelujah. When you say the word hallelujah, that just means praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Hallelujah. He said, praise God in his sanctuary. That's us, the people. We're to praise God in his sanctuary. And then he speaks to the angels. He says, praise him in his mighty heavens. And he speaks to us for our future. Then verse 2, praise him for his acts of power. Praise him for his surpassing greatness. You know what that means? It means praise God for what he's done. Praise him for his acts of power. And praise him for who he is. Praise him for his surpassing greatness. You understand today that if God doesn't do another thing for you, you still have enough reasons to praise him. You still have enough reasons to worship. If he does nothing more for you, he saved you. He wrote your name down in the Lamb's book of life. If you are saved today, your life could go downhill from here. And you would still, like Job, have every right and reason to say, God, even though you slay me, still I'll serve you. I will worship you. God, you are God. And I will worship you. That's one of the reasons he's created us. And then look at verse 3. It says, praise him with the sounding of the trumpet. Praise him with the harp and the lyre. Praise him with the timbrel and the dancing. Praise him with the strings and the pipes. So what is he saying? He's telling us that, you know, we ought to worship God with music. We ought to worship God with singing and with dancing, with our whole being and with all of our creativity. Let's worship God. And then verse 5 says, praise him with the clash of cymbals. Praise him with resounding cymbals. And every drummer, that's their favorite verse. That's their favorite scripture in all the Bible. Then verse 6 says, let everything that has breath praise the Lord. And then it says again, praise the Lord. Hallelujah. So if you're breathing, then this is your purpose. If you're breathing, one of the reasons you were created was to worship God. Paul the Apostle echoes the words of Isaiah In Philippians 2, when he says this, he says, Therefore God exalted him, speaking of Jesus, to the highest place, and he gave him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, what did he say? Every knee will bow, every tongue will confess, and acknowledge that Jesus Christ is the Lord to the glory of the Father. Worship of the Father was our created purpose. We get a glimpse of what it's going to be like in eternity future. Through John the Revelator, he said in Revelation 5, he saw every creature in heaven and earth and under the earth and on the sea and all that was in them and they were singing God's praise. That's the ultimate fulfillment of creation's purpose is to return back all that we are in worship to God. Let me give you another verse about worship. The Bible says this in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. I, I love this verse. We, we speak this verse a lot of times to remind the church of who we are in Christ, of what our identity is. But I want to use this verse to remind you of why we are in Christ and why we have this identity. 1 Peter 2, verse 9 says this. You are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, 
You're a holy nation. You're God's special possession. Doesn't that just make you feel good? You're God's special possession. But look at the next part. It says, that you may, or so that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness and into his wonderful light. Why did he make you his own special people? Why did he call you a holy nation? Why did he call you a royal priesthood? So that you would declare the praises of God. When we come together as the church, can I tell you, one of the reasons that we come together, one of the things that hold up this table is the reality that we have come to worship our God. He's worthy of praise. Can somebody say amen to that this morning? He's worthy of praise today. I want to tell you, worship is not just music. Worship is not just what we we did in the service earlier. Worship is so much more than that. Worship is so much more than singing. See, what we do sometimes is uh, just in in our vernacular, in our vocabulary, we unintentionally communicate bad theology. You know, like we might say something uh, like we're going to, we're going to uh, do the worship service first, and then we're going to get into the teaching. And so we associate that worship is the singing, and that the teaching is something else. But we understand that worship is the whole service. It's everything that we've do, done today, and everything that we are doing today. We worship God when we stand and we sing the songs, absolutely. But we also worship God as we sow our finances in the offering and and we worship God at the table of communion at the end of this service today and we're worshiping God right now through the teaching of the word of God this is worship and can I go a little farther and say that it was worship for the man and the woman who stood at the door and and was a door holder and, and invited people to come in and shook your hand and smiled at you that was an act of worship today when they were brewing the coffee this morning to serve you When the bulletins were being printed throughout the week, that was an act of worship unto God. And it goes outside of the realm of what we do here in the church. The Bible tells us whatever your hand finds to do, do it as unto the Lord. But a lot of times we just associate our worship with with the music that we sing. You know, worship predates music. Adam worshiped God in the garden. But we don't know anything about music until Genesis 4, when Jubal was born. And so if we just tie our understanding of worship to music, then then we miss out. And all of of us that are maybe not musical or don't play an instrument, then we feel incapable of fulfilling our purpose. But it's so much more. Another mistake that we make a lot of times in our vocabulary is thinking that worship is, is a style or a speed. You know, like, let's do a couple praise songs, and we want to do the fast stuff. And go, okay, now let's do a worship song, and we mean a slow song. But worship is not the speed of a song. And it's certainly not the style. You know, a lot of people go, well, I really, I really prefer the hymns over the worship songs. You know, and so we think, like, worship is a style. Like, well, those are, those are worship songs, and, and these are, these are the, the hymns. But worship is not a style. Let me just point something out maybe you've never thought of before. There are no musical notes in the Bible. So there's really no such thing as Christian music. There's just Christian lyrics. And now God can certainly anoint a musician and they can play under the anointing and it can worship without lyrics. Absolutely. God used David in that way. He's used many in that way. We ask that he uses us every time we play an instrument. God, let your anointing flow through. But how many of you know that has more to do with the heart of the musician 
than it does with the notes. I could play a song you don't know, and it could be pretty, and you have no idea if it's Christian or not. It's not. It's just notes on a page. There's no such thing as a biblical style of worship. The style of worship that is biblical is the kind that evokes a response of worship in your heart. So it's not this church does it right and that church does it wrong. No, it's worship from the heart. It's bigger than music. It's bigger than style. It's bigger than singing off a screen or singing out of a book. Worship is what we were created for. If we don't have this leg of the table, then the church is out of balance. People come out of the service going, you know, uh, yeah, that worship just really didn't do anything for me today. That's an out of balance statement. Worship's not about you. And so it's out of balance when we say, yeah, you know, uh, that, that worship didn't really do anything for me. Or, or even on the positive side, yeah, the worship really, uh, really encouraged me. I appreciate that. You know, and while I, I hear those comments, you know, as a minister, and I say thank you, and I do appreciate them, I understand the heart, but sometimes I, I kind of, in my mind, just remind myself a little bit when I hear somebody say, hey, that worship really blessed me, thank you. In my heart, I just go, it wasn't really for you. And I'm glad it blessed you, and we should be encouraged and blessed, but we need to understand that one of the reasons we come into this place week in and week out is to worship God. And we can't measure whether it was a good service or a bad service by what I got out of it because it wasn't for me. It was to Him be the glory. To Him be the honor. To Him be the praise forever and ever. And so one of the reasons we come together is to worship God. If you come and you bring an offering of praise, you can know that you had a purposeful day in God's house. You, you, don't, have, you don't have to worry. Like, well, you know, I, 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 really, that mess, I really was hoping He would preach something you know, more you know, more, more practical. Or You don't have to worry about if it was a waste of your time. If you came and you brought praise to the Father, that's one of the reasons that this church is here. One of the four legs of the table is that we worship God. You, you ought to do it. You ought to purpose in your heart every week. I'm, I'm, not, I'm not coming this week because I feel like I need something and, and staying out next week because, you know, things are going pretty well. No, my God deserves my praise. It's not about, well, the pastor wants me to be there. No, it's my God deserves my worship. And I was glad when they said unto me, David said, let's go to the house of the Lord. He was glad, not because he thought he was going to get something. He was glad because he wanted to bring something. He wanted to bring worship to the Father. And God's called us to do that. Here's the third leg. This table, if it's going to be a strong table, if it's going to be a sturdy table, the church has to stand on the leg of discipleship. Discipleship. Look with me in Matthew chapter 28. At the end of Matthew's gospel, right before Jesus, he's already conquered death and hell. He went to the cross. Three days later, he rose from the grave. He's appeared in bodily form for some 40 days. And now he's ready to ascend back to the right hand of the Father. And he has this incredible meeting with his disciples. We know it as the Great Commission. I, I just want us to look at it with fresh eyes this morning while we're thinking about this third leg of the table, discipleship. Matthew chapter 28, verse 18. Here's what it says. Then Jesus came to them and he said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, in other words, because of, 
This is the purpose statement. This is why I have the authority given to me. Therefore, go and make converts. Is that what it says? No. Go and make church members. That's not right, is it? What does it say? Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And here it is, teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded you. And as surely as I am with you always to the very end of the age. Make disciples. And you go, well, what does that mean, make disciples? The next verse gives the answer, teaching them to obey. That's what discipleship is. It's walking alongside someone and teaching them how to obey. Ooh, obey, I don't know. I mean, you you said salvation's a free gift and, and you can come as you are and and whosoever will, and, and you belong. I mean, there's a seat. Evangelism says there's a seat for me, right? That's what you said. Evangelism says I belong. You're right. Evangelism says you belong. No judgment here. You can come and sit at this table because this leg says you belong. And that I'm just one beggar telling another beggar where to find bread. But there's another leg called discipleship. And without that leg, this table doesn't stand. The church doesn't stand. It's wobbly. It's inconsistent. And so you come and you find a seat. Evangelism says you can come and sit here at this table. But as you belong, God begins to work from the inside out. He begins to deal with you about your attitude, your actions, you begin to, you do what the Bible said. It said, taste and see that the Lord is good. You're at the table. You're, this is good. I, I want to stay here. I'm, I'm going to pull up a seat now. I'm not coming because you're doing some giveaway or, or some gimmick. or I'm, I'm not coming just because you know, it, it's Mother's Day or it's Easter. No, I, I want to be here. I, I want to get my seat at the table. This is good stuff. I've tasted. I've seen. And now there's, there's a hunger. Discipleship comes along and says, okay, now, now let, me, let me teach you how to obey. Let me teach you how to walk this thing out. Listen to this statistic. Presently, 46% of Americans claim to be born again. Gallup, uh, a polling uh, business, Gallup, however, found that only 13% evidence behavioral and attitudinal differences compared with the general population. Now, you didn't need a statistic to tell you that, I know. You're like, yeah, yeah, we we know that. Yeah, Christian nation and God we trust, sure. Yeah, maybe 13% shows an attitudinal and a behavioral difference from the rest of the culture. We can all point fingers. We all know people who are Christians in name only. And you look at their lifestyle and you look at things and there's nothing different from them and the general population. Barna Research found that only 5% of adults and less than... 10% of church teenagers possess a biblical worldview. In other words, we see things through the scripture of lens, uh, the the lens of scripture. Only only 5% of adults and less than 10% of church youth, people that are being raised, people that are sitting at the table. You know what that tells me? That they're not being taught how to obey. They're at the table. 
Every weekend, their name's on the roll, but when they walk out, they haven't learned how to obey what they just consumed at the table. And so their life isn't different. Their attitude's not different. Their behavior is not any different. Dallas Willard bluntly stated it like this. He said, non-discipleship is the elephant in the church. Non-discipleship. That we can come and, and partake and sit and eat meal after meal. And yet there's nothing different about our lives. That, that's not a statement to condemn someone who's struggling to try to live right. No, no, no. What it is, it, it's a reminder to us as the body of Christ. And I'm not talking about church programs, by the way. Programs are not the substitute for relationship. Programs only work with relationship. So what this, this kind of a stat, uh, stat says to us is that we have to remember the, the impetus is, is on us. That we are to go and make disciples, teaching them how to obey. It starts in the home, for sure, with your own kids, with your own family. But it also reaches into, uh, into the church life and into the people that we rub shoulders with. Not just sitting and, and, and hearing a message and, and enjoying a once-a-week meal at the table. But being the church... And walking this thing of discipleship out with each other and encouraging others in their relationship with God, teaching them to obey. Let me give you the fourth leg of this table. It's compassion. Compassion. The Bible says this in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old is gone. The new is here. That's supernatural. That's transformation. That's mostly spiritual. If you've been saved, if you've come to the Lord and maybe you came uh, to the Lord carrying a lot of baggage, maybe your testimony would be, you know what, everything didn't change for me right away. I came to the Lord, and, and I, was, I was still addicted to some things. And I, it took me a long time to break free from it. Or maybe you'd even be here today and say, you know what? I came to the Lord. I'm saved, but I still struggle. I, I'm still bound. And so you read a verse like this, and maybe you think you, you, you prayed the prayer wrong or you did it wrong. Because this verse says, if anyone is in Christ, he's new. The old is gone. Everything's new now. The new is here. The old is gone. It's talking about what happens spiritually in our lives when when we accept christ we are transformed yes you might still have to be learning and this is the discipleship leg you might still have to learn how to walk in your freedom but you're free sin has no hold on you the bible says you have no obligation to that sinful nature you have victory over it but here's the deal if we are saved if behold all things have become new and we are now transplanted into his kingdom then our minds the bible says are renewed in other words we think different now we don't see things the way that we used to see them before we had the experience of coming to christ those who have experienced christ have a radical reorientation of the way that they see the world. 
So compassion all of a sudden is a critical part of the church. Maybe it wasn't a critical part of your life before, but your mind's been renewed. We see things differently when we come in contact with the Word of God. In fact, there's several examples of it in, in the Bible. One that comes to my mind is in Luke chapter 19. It's the story of Zac- Zacchaeus. When he, he meets Jesus, he comes in contact with the Word of God, the truth of God. And, and let me just tell you what it says here. Luke chapter 19. In verse 7, all the people saw this and they began to mutter. They were saying, again, about Jesus, he has gone to be a guest of sinners. They couldn't believe it here. Luke 19, I can't believe Jesus went back and sat at the table with a bunch of sinful folks. But look at the attitude that shifted in a man who was lost and now is found. And a man who was blind but now can see. Zacchaeus, look at verse 8, Luke 19. It says, but Zacchaeus stood up and he said to the Lord, look, Lord, here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor. And if I have cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. Here was a guy who who was really just a, a thief. He was a tax collector and he was skimming extra funds from the people and everybody knew it. But he came in contact with Jesus, and all of a sudden he had compassion. Things that he was desensitized to before now bothered him. And now he recognized, because Jesus saved me, i got to make this right. I can't, I can't keep all this to myself. i got to love people. I can't just hoard all this. i got to be generous. If he saved me, if he died on the cross for me, why wouldn't I give myself to others? But you know, in the previous chapter, right in, in Luke 18, there was another guy that came to Jesus. Just like Zacchaeus, he came and encountered Jesus, and Jesus even invited him to come and follow him. This is the man that we know as the rich young ruler. Look at verse 23, after Jesus had invited him to follow him. Verse 23 of Luke 18 says, when the man had heard this, he became very sad because he was very wealthy. In other words, he came and met Jesus. But he didn't receive Jesus as Lord. He didn't surrender his life to Jesus. And so when he was presented with the opportunity to show compassion, to sell all your possessions, to do for others, he said, I can't do that, man. I, 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 can't, I can't give up my nest egg. I can't. He was sad. Zacchaeus is over here jumping for joy, emptying his pockets. He's just loving everybody and not just paying them back for the wrong he did. He's blessing people with four times what he had taken away. And so we have to look at the table and we have to ask ourselves, if this is really the table of the church and this is the Lord's church, shouldn't we be motivated by compassion? Shouldn't shouldn't we be driven Outside of our natural, earthly, human, sinful tendencies, shouldn't we be compelled to love others the way that Christ loved us? See, our attitudes and our priorities reveal Christ's influence in our lives. Our attitudes, our priorities reveal how much influence he has. I mean, we can sing about it all day. We can worship about it. But the way that we respond reveals his influence in our life. How odd would it be 
If we proclaimed God as our king, and we said we are sons and daughters in his kingdom, and yet at the same time, we never demonstrated concern for the poor. We never showed care for the needy or those who are less fortunate for us. I mean, this is a little bit of a probing question for some of us maybe because, you know, we we might just want to just stay on this end of the table where there's worship and there's evangelism and that's all good. And and I, I I might even go through some discipleship classes every now and then. But compassion? Yeah, compassion. Because it's a farce to say that we are a part of his kingdom, that we have been translated into his kingdom, that that we are sons and daughters, that we are co-heirs with Christ Jesus in this kingdom. And yet his priority is to go out and to seek and to save the lost, to put the brokenhearted in families, to be a hospital for the hurting. And yet our priorities don't reflect that at all. So it's important that we understand that this table is wobbly at best if we don't have a priority of showing compassion to others, of touching hurting people. I want to give you a practical way that we're going to do this this month, just something that probably all of us can do. Um, There's some information in the bulletin about a project called Project Toy Box. And uh, this is similar to other programs that maybe you've heard of before, uh, Toys for Tots, things like that. Uh, But this one kind of opens up the options a little bit more for us in that uh, this is a local uh, effort between the churches here in our community uh, in the Eastern York area. And starting next Sunday through December 6th, we're going to be collecting toys. If you want to get new toys, you can get new toys. But we also want to open it up to gently use toys. And there's, there's items listed there in the bulletin. And I want to just encourage you as a way to maybe bring compassion back to the table in your own family. Especially if you, if you have kids and you know they're writing their list. They got stuff they want. And you know you don't even have room for the stuff that they want. You're figuring out where you're going to stick the stuff this year. You still got stuff from last year and the year before that. This would be a great way to practically teach compassion in your own home. I'm going to do this with my, my girls. We're going to go through and we're going to find stuff. It was great. It was an awesome toy. But that was like two years ago. Don't really play with that anymore. Still in good shape. Let's clean that thing up. Let's wash it. Let's bring it and we'll, we'll place it at the church. And as we get closer to Christmas, we'll, we'll put a tree out there. And, but you can bring them next week and we'll have a designated area. And we're going to just begin to collect items because in the month of December... There's going to be a store opened up for a weekend, and it's going to be available for parents who are in need, uh, families that are maybe on low income, that their, their kids would have a, a below average Christmas or maybe no Christmas at all without the compassion of the people of God. And they're going to be able to go in that day. There's going to be a fun zone where they can send their kids to go and play and have fun while they shop. And they can go in, and they can shop, and they can... Get Christmas gifts for absolutely free. No price. Just bring a birth certificate so we know how old your child is. Just to confirm that you actually have children or or grandchildren. And and they're going to be able to go in and they're going to be able to fill up their their cart with Christmas gifts. And then they're going to be able to go over to the gift wrapping station. And they're going to have those gifts wrapped for them right there. 
How many of you think that would be a great expression of the love of Jesus? I know I'm, I'm preaching to the choir this morning because you just did it this weekend with our fall fest. So many of you. And I've got to be honest, I've had people before that have kind of criticized me a little bit. Man, I can't believe you're spending that money and you're doing all that stuff and you're not going to preach. I mean, you've got, you got a captive audience, man. You need to get up on a platform and tell them how to find salvation. Listen, I'm all for evangelism. That is absolutely one of the legs of the table. But so is compassion. And sometimes we just need to love people. And say, I'm going to love you whether you show up at my church or not. I'm going to love you whether you're open to the gospel or not. I'm going to love you because I'm the salt of the earth. I'm the God flavoring in the culture. And when you get around us, you're going to know that there are good people because there's a good God. And hey, there are some things for nothing. You can, you can put your skepticism away. We really do just want to love you. No, no, no. We really do. We just want to, we just want to celebrate with you and, and your family. Well, why would you do that? Why? Because our God is gracious. Because he's good. Because he's lavished us. So why not? No strings attached. We just, we love you. And compassion is a critical foundation to this table called the church. Now I'm going to tell you why these are all so important. That we have evangelism, that we have discipleship, that we have compassion, that we have worship of God. All these things, man, we need a solid table. We don't want to get out of balance one way or another. We need a solid table because of what's on the table. We're serving the bread of life. We're serving the bread of life. That's what Jesus said. In John chapter 6, he said, I, I am the bread came down from heaven. You know, in the Old Testament, God sent manna, and, and Moses fed all the people. And so, in, in John 5, when, when Jesus multiplied the loaves and the fishes, everybody got their belly full. They got excited about that. So the next day, they tracked him down, and they went asking him for another miracle. And Jesus kind of criticized him in that moment. He said, you're not here because God touched your life. You're here because your bellies are full. And you want another meal. And then Jesus made this incredible statement to him. He began to teach them. See, the first day, it was all about compassion. They didn't deserve it. They didn't earn it. He just loved them. No strings attached. No fee coming in the door. No fee going out the door. He just fed them and he blessed them. But he also wanted to disciple them. And when they came back thinking this is just about a handout, he said, listen, the bread you're looking for, if I give it to you again today like I did yesterday, you'll be back tomorrow. You'll never be satisfied. I'm offering something a lot more than a meal. I am the bread from heaven. I'm the bread from heaven. Not manna in the wilderness. I, Jesus, I'm the bread of life. And he came to feed us. And that's what we're serving at this table. When we come to this table to evangelize the lost, to worship God, to disciple believers and to show compassion to those that need it. We offer a balanced table with bread. And, and just in closing, before we, we're going to end with communion here in just a moment. I just want to tell you, it's so important that we don't forget what we're serving. That while lots of things can help and assist in the work, we're serving the bread of life. This is all about Jesus. When we evangelize the lost, it's not to build church attendance, it's about Jesus. 
If they get saved and they choose to connect with the church down the street because they were raised in a denominational traditional church, praise God, because Jesus never said go out and build the church. He said build the kingdom. So we're not doing this to just, you know, fill pews and and pad stats for our ego. When we worship God, it's not because we enjoy the music, it's because He enjoys the music. We lift our voices and our hearts to bless Him, not us. When we disciple believers, you know, disciple, I've learned, sounds a lot like discipline for a reason. It's hard. It's inconvenient. It takes time. It takes patience. But we do it. Because we haven't forgot what we're serving. And we show compassion for the same reason. Yesterday, I'll tell you a quick story and then we'll go to the table of the Lord. Yesterday, uh, Morgan had a horse riding competition. And so we were there all day at the stable for this horse riding competition. And, uh, and thankfully, they had uh, a food deal set up in the barn where you could go and get hot dogs and hot chocolate and all that stuff. And, and at one end of the table, they had all kinds of uh, snacks, like homemade stuff. People had made and put in Ziploc baggies, and there's brownies, and, and there's cookies, and, and all that stuff. And, and so we go up there, and, and, and we pick out several items, and, and we're purchasing some snacks and things. And, and so we... We're standing around a picnic table, and we're eating, and Mary, my mother-in-law, she, she bites into one of the snacks uh, that she had purchased, and she goes, oh, and she goes over and spits it out, and she comes back and apologizes, and she says, I'm sorry, but that was gross. I don't know what that was, but that was disgusting, and so we're like looking at it, it's got like peppermint chips on it and we can't figure out what this little homemade baked goodie is and and there's some other folks there she's like you might i'm gonna throw them away but if you think you might like them and they're like no i don't think i'll like them i mean you know you just spit it out so okay so so we didn't eat those anymore so we go back to the cookies and all the good stuff well a little while later that lady comes back over to let us know that those snacks at the end of the table were horse treats (laughs) Yeah. You know? <laughs> I, I had to go in and take a second look. I couldn't believe it. There, there was no sign. Just Ziploc baggies full of homemade snacks. And right over on the end, horse treats. Same price. Oh my. Hey, let's not forget what we're serving. All right, let's be clear about it too. This is not a, this is not a, a bait and switch thing. This isn't a self-help thing. This is the bread of life. This is one beggar saying to another beggar, here's where you can find food. This is not do what we do, say what we say, and your life will get better. Believe like we believe, behave like we behave, and then you'll be a part of a, a group. No, no, no. This is, this is come broken, come needy, come as you are, come and belong at this table, and eat freely of the bread of life, and He will save you. He will change you from the inside out. He will transform you. The old will be gone. The new has come. That's what we're, serv- that's what we're serving on this table 
That's why it's so important that it doesn't wobble and shake and that we don't present it right. That we come together and that we are committed to evangelism, discipleship, worship of God, and compassion.